And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. It is Wednesday. We are halfway through the week. It is a busy broadcast week here at Sci-Fi for Me. Welcome, everyone. Jason Hutt here in the studio. We are live from the super-secret underground bunker at World Headquarters. And uh, like I said, busy week this week. We dropped a new H2O podcast on Monday. We dropped a new Salacious Crumbs last night. And we haven't uh, we haven't stopped yet. So the chat is open. Email address if you want to leave us feedback that way. Live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. You can also leave a comment if you are uh, partaking of this program after we're live. Uh, so there is that option as well. And just a real quick mention: superherostuff.com. You can get ten percent off your order when you use the promo code sci-fi for me ten when you check out. And you can maybe wear that uh, wear that swag somewhere um, in some event at some point, maybe on a Zoom call like we've got right now. Alan Stroud joining us from across the pond. Welcome, sir. I do. It is uh, it is good to have you here. He is the author of the new novel Fearless. And uh, we will be getting into talking about that here for a moment. Now, now let me let me ask you this. He, uh, uh, Alan is a professor at Coventry University, which is near Birmingham in the UK. And if I understand this right, just looking at the bio, Fearless is your very first full-length novel. Is that right? Uh, no. No. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't sure I had that right, but I, I uh, yeah. wondered. It's, it's, I think it's my sixth or seventh, but it's the oh, first okay. one with Flame Tree. Um, okay. I misread they, that then. No worries. And, uh, and obviously I can, I can, I can tell you about my, my torturous path towards publishing uh, whenever you're ready. Yeah, no, absolutely. Cause I'm reading the blog here of the, of the, the, the path to get fearless out to press. Uh, and the other stuff that you've done has has been tie-in material for video games, and so this is is this not maybe not your first original, but it's. I'll let you explain it better because you're people are going to enjoy listening to you say it more than more than I do anyway. So, <laughs> so um, yeah, no, it's uh, it's it's my first science fiction full-length novel that's not uh, not part of a, a fiction franchise um so the first science fiction novel i did was elite labor evolution which um is tied into the computer game elite dangerous uh and that came out of working with the software company on developing the 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 background the, the history um and uh and some of the stuff related to to that computer game so i i was kind of a concept writer really um i worked with them on creating the the sort of the information that then moved on to to be how they base some of the story for the game and all of the tie-in fiction that um that other people 
uh, produced as well. So yeah, so I did one of those novels. This is the first science fiction novel I've done that's of, of my own uh, sort of um, world as it were. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I started as a fantasy writer, to be fair. Um, you know, I was always saw myself as a fantasy writer and um, then suddenly seems to be I do science fiction now. Now, have you have you seen a, a difference in how you approach telling that story? Since you know, well, I'm I'm a fantasy writer. I'm a fantasy writer. Oh, well, now I'm suddenly writing science fiction. And I was talking to Cheryl Campbell about this a couple of weeks ago, mm. and she's done fantasy and now has gone into science fiction. Are you, are you finding that your process has changed at all, or just a little bit different? Your world building approach different, or um, the the process is definitely different. Um, I, I I don't consider myself to be a very good scientist, uh, but I try very hard to make sure that I'm I'm as accurate as I can possibly be. And one of the nice things about some of the initial reading that that people have had of Fearless is that they they feel it's very uh, it's very hard science fiction. It's very um, authentic in terms of the the technology that's there. Um, now, that's not really part of the novels that uh, that I write in fantasy. Um, I did. I altered my style quite a lot, actually, in that um, when I started, it, it was it was around the time I started the draft of this, a little bit before. I, I got a a story published by Newcom Press called The Last Tank Commander, and that was subsequently picked up by Bayon Books um, in in their year's best military and science fiction space adventure. Um, anthology that um, uh, David Ashvarad um, edits, and uh, so they'd, they'd approach me and, and, and sort of said they'd like to, you know, to, to take the story. And it, it's in a very different style to my other stuff. I used to write, and I still do, you know, in, in certain areas. Um, I used to write very third-person past, so quite conventional. This is first-person present. Um, so, and the, that that. That was a style that I developed with The Last Tank Commander and then did a, a lot of short story writing with um, the computer game Phoenix Point. And uh, this is the first full length novel that I tried to do in that style. And, and frankly, I, you know, if you'd asked me 10 years ago when I was teaching writing to students and said, you know, will, will you ever publish something in first person present? No, never. No, couldn't do a novel like that. No, 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 I, I, I couldn't do it, you know. And actually, it turns out, you know, that's that's the style that works. So, well, that's and, the and style we've gone with. I'm curious about that because yours is not the first novel that I've run across that does first person present as its narrative structure. Uh, I ran across it with um, Chuck Wendig doing his aftermath trilogy, the Star Wars books. That was that was where I first encountered it as a as a major publication, as it were. Um, and of course, you've had the first-person past tense narrative, but it's very rare to see it in present tense. And now you've got Wendig doing it. You you've done it. Uh, Brian Cato's got it with uh, his his new book called uh, Candidate uh, Candidate Spectrum. Uh, we're going to be talking about it with him tomorrow. But the the choice to do first-person present uh, has quite frankly for me personally kind of kind of 
confuses me. I wonder what the motivations are behind choosing that narrative structure. Was there a particular reason why you, you use that? Yeah, very much so. Um, it, it, it came out of, I mean, initially when I was thinking about it for the short stories that I was doing, um, it, it felt like it was something I could sustain over, over 5,000, 6,000 words, you know, which was, was fine. And one of the advantages I found with experimenting with it is it made everything, it made a lot of the, the connection between you and the, or the characters and the reader very immediate, you know, and, and obviously it would do, you know, um, so I like that. Um, I like the fact that yeah, the tension's quite visceral. The yeah, the imagery's quite it's it's right there. It's right in front of you know of people, and and there is a little bit less of a concern over the contrivance because you know you can you can look at any of these these different writing methods and you can kind of talk about well how is someone able to do that you know and only. The only one that really makes sense is first person past because it could be a journal, you know, somebody somebody writing after the event. All the others they don't they don't quite make sense, you know, in terms of um, uh, the the being a a narration uh, in terms of what's there. They 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 all kind of have a a little bit of a contrivance to them. But the advantage I found in, in specifically in science fiction with this was it allows you to not get bogged down. So you don't have to think about all of the the elements that you might consider thinking about if you were writing about it um, expositionally, trying to describe some of the the stuff that was happening or or what people would see or or, or anything else. You your your perspective is quite narrow, so it offers you this this opportunity to hide stuff if you need to hide stuff, um, which I quite like because uh, I, I I find that that particularly useful because you can hide behind the fact that the character would only know a certain, you know, a certain amount about how things work. Now, the characters that I'm using, uh, I've got three perspective characters in here. One's a, a technician, one's a, um, a communications officer, and one's a, a captain. And, you know, they all know that they're all quite technically adept. So they've all got, you know, sort of very uh, kind of, switched on brains in terms of the you know the the mechanics of what's going on in the spaceship around them but when there are certain things that i don't necessarily want to get into detail of they're not worried about them and actually that allows the characters to to almost drive the story um in a certain respect so the the idea here for uh the immediacy and you're and you're you're talking about when you're saying that that the narration track is relatively contrived you're talking about third-person omnipotent, you know, the omniscient narr narrator, you're saying is kind of a contrivance to begin with just because of, of the fact that where is this narrator in terms of, in relation to the, the rest of the story? Yeah, yeah, that and also if, um, it, also if it's a viewpoint, because if it's a viewpoint and it's third-person, then it's not you, but you're inside that person's head, so somehow you've got telepathy, right? Right. And uh, and and you're 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 viewing the rest of the world from you know from their perspective. Uh, that's that's a bit strange, um, and it it also doesn't fit with a kind of um, because as you say the the omnis om, omniscient narrator tends to fit a bit more with a kind of stage construction. So if we were you know if we were watching something happening, 
then you know that 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 kind of gives the audience a place. But yeah, it's it it all of them when you when you kind of start to pick, they they kind of have a bit of a weirdness to them. Um, but that's you know we we all accept that, don't we? You know we kind of accept that in terms of how we're we're doing stuff. But I just specifically in this, in terms of when I was writing, uh, I found that the the first person present just gives me this kind of this level of immersion as I'm putting the narrative together. And I, I kind of hope it gives that that same sort of level of with them identification following the story as you know as as it does for the reader um, in terms of what's going on. When you're thinking about that in terms of you know identifying with your narrator, identifying with the the, the characters that are going on, Choosing your lead character is probably a key element of that. You have, uh, like you said, you've got three three different perspective characters here. One of them, Captain Bran. You want to get into a little bit about uh, about her. Yeah. So her Elisa character? Shan is Shan. Um, she's uh, she's essentially, and and this was this was one of the motivations for writing the book actually, and and you know when I was I was quite keen to to do this um so disability is something that is um is present in my life it is something that you know is in my immediate uh my immediate family um and is you know is around me and i i see the ways in which that that plays out in a social context and the ways in which it plays out you know in a personal context and i i wanted to write something that wasn't an overcoming narrative so it was very much from the perspective of a disabled character but often what you you do see sometimes is that you will see um, people who are disabled characters in stories that have to overcome their disability to uh, to attempt to achieve something and and that that to me was was becoming something of a trope and I was very relieved to watch um, Doctor Who so the new series of Doctor Who um in in the last couple of years has really tried to go against that you know you have characters who have um who have things that they are dealing with and they are still you know they are succeeding not because they have to overcome those things but you know it's lived experience and with shan it was very much the case that i wanted a character who um she begins the novel in this this state where she's exactly where she wants to be. Um, she works in space. It's in zero gravity. Um, she's lived for most of her life um, without any legs. And um, some of her life, you know, she, she's, she's used mechanical legs or, or another device, but um, she's lived most of her life without any legs. That's how she prefers to be. And she, she lives and works in zero gravity and it, it absolutely suits her and she's taken to it, you know, and, that to me, having somebody who visually, um, you know, is, is very obviously different to others, um, which is is one of the things I was was keen to kind of get across as well. But also having somebody who who is absolutely in their element and and is living their life as a you know as a human being, and then suffers adversity, deals with that adversity um, as a human being, rather than kind of as a human being but also as a disabled person who is trying to overcome their disability to try and you know that 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 to me is not the way in which um i wanted to tell a story so um yeah it was very important to 
to get that across. Um, and, you know, it's one of the major themes of the novel. Now, did you get any relative pushback from uh, beta readers or editors or publishers when you started pitching this idea around? Did you get any pushback on the fact that you were you were approaching a disabled character in such a way? Because, like you say, it's not our typical... Uh, our typical way of representing disabled people. And that makes me wonder if, if people were kind of, was anybody taken aback by it? Or were they, did it, did it surprise them? It's like, why are you taking this approach? Or Yeah, there's, there's one situation that, that, that actually that came to mind, uh, comes to mind in, in response to that. So um, the first chapter I did a reading of the first chapter here at um, at FantasyCon uh, in 2017, um, and I was chairing the the convention, and so I I you know I got my my pick of when I was doing my reading slot, uh, but I I always tend to try to to put myself in a, a situation that maybe you know I wouldn't subject anybody else to, so you know so I made sure I had had the late night reading slot. I was thinking well everyone will have gone to bed. But anyway, so I was I was sat in there with some some lovely other uh, other readers, and we had a really good crowd. Uh, thankfully, because Adrian Tchaikovsky's got lots of fans, so so they all turned up to listen to him, and you know, and they got me as well. Um, and so I, I read the first chapter, and in the first chapter, there is a moment in the first chapter where the character breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the audience about the image of disabled people. And I could feel the audience kind of a little bit of tension in the audience. You right. know, there was a little bit of squirming in terms of what's there, but it's, it's utterly intentional. And um, I then, uh, once the, the novel was completed, I then did send it around to a few people just to, you know, to read. And I had one person speak to me about that specific thing and say, oh, maybe you don't want to put that in there. Um, but there was a good reason for it. And I, I, I kind of stuck to my guns. And then when it came to it being gone through by Flame Tree and uh, uh, the editors there, uh, Don Diora, who's, who's fantastic, they went over it and they absolutely got it. They knew exactly what I was doing because I put that in to essentially to, you know, in the first chapter, you get a bit of a slap in the face as a reader, specifically to make sure that the image of this character is locked um, because I'd had a conversation with Pat Cadigan at um, uh, the, the SF Foundation lectures a couple of years before, and we'd been discussing Alfred Bester's work, and we'd been discussing other writers. And she'd been talking about the fact that sometimes writers were f sort of fighting the white male default in people's minds. And I, I understood it in my own, you know, I could, I could see it in my own mind, in that if, if you don't have enough of a description of a character, then there was there was something subconscious that was filling it in and it was filling it in in certain ways and you know some of that also comes out in in space opera when or it did do i don't think it's quite so bad now but it, it you know, when when you write a space opera maybe your readers might imagine star wars scenes because the imagery is so pervasive right. you know they will basically sort of see those kind of spaceships see those kind of laser beams see those kind of engines and so on and so forth and I absolutely wanted to lock in. I, I didn't mind, you know, I don't mind people seeing Star Wars ships uh, if they read my novel, but I wanted to lock in that, that 
Shan's image was very specific in terms of how you know how she looks and 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 what she is, and that that was important. So I you know I intentionally broke the fourth wall at that point to to do it, and it was the only bit that that anybody kind of went you know as to but the the flame tree guys absolutely got it, and then there's a subsequent bit as like a mirror right at the end where she breaks the fourth wall again, and that's more about where she's come to you know, where she's got to at the end of the novel compared to where she is at the beginning so um yeah i, I thought it was a you know, a, a necessary device I, I have other writer friends who are a lot more experimental than me but she you know uh you know this 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 seemed necessary all the time when i was writing it it, it felt right in terms of the way in which we would put it in so if, if you're tell, if you're writing a story in first person presence how do how do you break the fourth wall on something like that? Because your your narrator is essentially breaking, in a way, breaking the fourth wall throughout the entire story. So how how do you how do you make that distinction? Like you say, you know, typically for break the fourth wall, you have a character that just kind of steps out of the scene and says, "Oh, by the way," but you're in first person present. How yeah. So. Yeah, you you still can. I mean, it, it essentially what she's doing is she is directly addressing the people who are reading the book, rather than talking about what is happening to her in a fairly conversational tone. You know, gotcha. I'm moving through the ship, um, uh, door door at corridor number six. Uh, I open that, and inside is so and so and so and so. Rather than talking about that, she's saying, "Does that give an image, or you know, does that give you an image of me?" Um, I, how do you see me? You know, that's not how the world works anymore. The world works this way now. You know, so it, it's it's very much talking directly to the reader in terms of um, the information that she's just given immediately before, um, and and talking to the reader specifically about how they might have uh, an image of her um, in terms of how her physical appearance and or or her um her social status in relation to to how she is and that's that's in, you know that that's important and it doesn't really have the similar to the kind of contrivance that we were talking about earlier doesn't quite have the the kind of immersion uh plausibility of the of the context that she's in it feels very much like she's talking directly to a person you know that she's looking straight down the barrel of the camera and she's saying, this is how it is, you know, and right. it, it's interesting because I, I genuinely don't want to make a, you know, a reader feel uncomfortable. Um, but I kind of do in that I don't think that people are making that judgment necessarily. But when when that question is asked of them, if they feel a bit uncomfortable and feel like it's an accusation, then it's it's interesting and you know and obviously I, I i then move you know we then move on you know so it's just it's like a little speed bump in the first chapter and then you kind of just just move on and the story continues but it locks her locks her 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 appearance you know it locks in who you're talking to and it it very much sets her character you know she's a strong character and you know she makes no apologies for who she is or what she is has there been a lot of back and forth chatter over in the UK and in Europe here here in in the United States uh, there is a lot of 
especially online social media dialogue in terms of the question of representation. Well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, and, and the way it's, it's framed a lot of times nowadays, and I don't know if this is just an evolution of the conversation or people are staking a claim on a particular position just to, to stir the pot, but there's, there are a lot of people who are sitting there saying, you should not write a character who's not like you. You know, uh, if you're not black, you shouldn't write a black character as your lead. If you're not disabled, you shouldn't write a character who's disabled as your lead. Uh, did you get any kind of discussion there? Because you, as you say, you have that in your family and in, in your personal life, you have a connection to that. But if if your if your lead character is black, for example, you're not. It, have you have you? Has there been a lot of that chatter and dialogue and discussion over in, in Europe the same as it has been over here? Because that seems to be a big bugaboo for a lot of people nowadays. Uh, it's it's a complex discussion. I mean, it, it filters more into my, my professional work, really, in the, as the university lecturer in uh, media and communications. Representation is a big part of, of what we talk about. Um, and, you know, there are a variety of of student projects that I'm, I'm kind of assisting, supervising, mentoring, supporting, where individuals are looking to to improve representation of, of specific minorities, uh, or of uh, you know highlighting specific issues. Um, it, as I say, I think it's a complex discussion. I think that when we get into a discussion related to uh, having to write about your own lived experience. I would suggest that writing about your own lived experience is an incredible positive tool and it is something that you can use um, as a writer. Um, I think it is a little concerning if you find yourself in a situation where you're questioning whether you're capable of writing about, um, writing about something that's close to your lived experience. Um, I mean, I, I kind of, and there isn't, there's a comparison on one level that's acceptable. And there's a comparison on another level that's, that's not quite what I mean, but I'll, I'll, I'll sort of make the point. So where I said earlier about how I'm not a great scientist, when I'm, when I'm not a great scientist, if I'm going to write a novel that's, that's quite scientifically, technologically detailed, I do the research. I go and you know, I go and read an awful lot of stuff and I try and immerse myself in something to, you know, to create something that's rational and plausible. Right. Um, and I would argue that that you you try and do the same when you're attempting to portray characters who have different lived uh, lived in experiences than you. Um, that really doesn't matter um, what those specific lived in experiences are, apart from when it does matter what those lived in experiences are in terms of how you're doing sentence by sentence, line by line, when the things matter to the character. Um, where you go to get that research is, you know, is is important and 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 kind of the priority. And how detailed you make that research is the priority. Um, I would argue, and this is kind of where I sit on this. I want to see more diverse vo voices in fiction, and I would argue that the best possible thing is to have people writing about their experiences. And writing about the things that that are meaningful to them, and seeing that um, communicated and conveyed on the best possible platforms, um, I, I I want to see that. But 
I don't feel that I necessarily should compromise or not compromise. I should curtail my creativity um, because I am not specifically this particular character. You know, I am not specifically female, um, no. for example. Um, I, you know, whether I do it successfully or not is the is the judgment of the reader, and you know that that is entirely uh, something that I I absolutely accept. And I I have a a bit of a um, a kind of theoretical um, uh, set of research in relation to the uh, the reader and the writer and how the reader is actually writers need to prioritize readers more in texts find ways to allow readers to uh, to you know to sort of connect with their imagination and fire their own imaginations when they're when they're reading a text um, but yeah the reader the reader should be the judge I do think there are you know there are very much there are areas where you can you can fall down um, if you don't do the research right then you shouldn't be writing about something um, and if you you know if you make a, a mistake that is quite blatant um, that you know without thinking about the culture that you're you're attempting to, to talk about or a culture that's related to what you're attempting to talk about if you make a mistake that's quite blatant then that's on you um, you know as a as a writer and, and all you can do is apologize and try and make it better um, in the best way that you can um, but yeah no I I don't necessarily feel that um, that that I should I should be mindful of exactly what I'm uh, you know in terms of narrowing my, my my box to the to the the culture and the the background that I have. Sure. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, I think lived experience is incredibly positive. And there are characters, you know, there are characters in this this book that you know there are elements of my own lived experience. Some of my best writing, I would say. Um, you know, having having read some of it back, is is when I I use lived experience. Um, with with the last tank commander, there was certainly, I mean, the 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 main character of that is is not my my passed away father who 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 um, uh, died in two thousand and sixteen, but there are some elements of how my dad would approach life in that character. And, you know, that was incredibly important to me. Um, and, you know, and I was able to find ways to kind of make that connection. And I, and I think, you know, there are ways that you can do that as a writer. So, yeah, sorry if that's a, a slightly long and no, convoluted answer, but well, it, it probably gives you my, my sort of take. Well, and like you said, it's a complex issue. It's something that mm -hmm. you can't just distill down into ones and zeros in, and it's this or that. And, and, Whenever I hear, because there have been a number of, of novels in the in the past oh, two or three years, I know of three specifically, where the author has pulled the book before it ever gets published because they've been criticized for this very thing. And it's, it's that, you know, falling on your sword, mea culpa, that to me doesn't really feel necessary when you look into the circumstances of that particular book. It, it can be. I mean, um, yeah, it would depend on on the on the the fiction itself. I mean, I I have a uh, it's a funny story to me because it's it's slightly self martyring. Um, I wrote. I spent quite a lot of time in the last decade writing a, uh, a a science fiction invasion novel called Judgment Earth, where I got to about eighty five thousand words, 
and this this novel was about an alien coming to the planet to wipe out humanity to leave the planet so that the rest of um, the living things on the planet could could go back to the way they needed to go because humanity was was the problem and uh, so this this thing turns up and and some of the scenes you know I was I was thinking about interstellar travel you know by by uh, a living organism that starts out as as kind of tiny cells and gradually acquires mass as it gets closer to the planet thereby it can travel really fast when it's when it's further away blah 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 blah, blah. and then it when it gets here it absorbs people and you know some of the characters end up as characters in its own head and, and you know and it can mimic other people and blah 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 and I, I got really really involved and uh so i decided that the way in which it was going to destroy the world was with a virus dun, 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 <laughs> and that virus was going to make people make stupid decisions because it was going to affect uh, and infect all the politicians at the top of our society and then they'd all do stupid stuff and then we had a load of very very strange election results um across the world and lots of lots of weird stuff started to happen and uh, I realized that reality had jumped the shark and I had 80,000 words of a novel that didn't sound as sensational as right. what was actually going on in the world. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I think sometimes you've got to pull it, you know, sometimes yeah. you, you've got to make a creative decision for yourself. And that book is still there. You know, I, I, I revisited it last year, actually, and went, uh, well, maybe we can change the virus. Maybe it could be a kind of infectious virus where people end up in in kind of, you know, quarantine camps and this, that and this. And oh, look. Sure. Well, <laughs> it's funny. I uh, We had uh, Declan Finn on here a few weeks ago. We were talking about his his St. Tommy novels and just how over the top he has he has made those. And he sat there and he said, I don't know that I, I where I can go next because reality is catching up to the really outrageous stuff that he's putting in his books. And it seems to me and and just in a in a broader context when you look at science fiction we see all the dystopian futures and all of that. But it almost seems nowadays that reality in terms of, you know, computer technology, artificial intelligence, all of the gadgets that we have, all of the things that we have, you know, medicine and, and science and astronomy and all these things. It almost seems like we're at the point where we've caught up to all of the speculative fiction, all the futurism. Can Does science fiction have a future? Because it almost seems like where what can you project from here that's not a dystopian future because that seems to be the default anymore where anybody is telling a story about the future is because some disaster has happened. Is there, is there a place from here forward for science fiction that's more optimistic, more adventure, more action, any of those as opposed to just, you know, the chosen one who saves us from ourselves after we've halfway destroyed the planet? Uh, I think there is. Um, I would suggest that there are a fair few um, good texts that are kind of doing different things here. I mean, I was reading James Gunn wrote a, a really great autobiography um, about Isaac Asimov or biography about Isaac Asimov. And um, I was reading that the other day and um, the, you know, the, the kind of meritocracy intelligentsia um, elements of Asimov 
you know, they're they're quite far away from where we are in some respects, but some of the respects of them, you know, still still resonate. Some things still um, still make sense, and you know, and, and still give us something. Uh, I think with psychohistory, we now have algorithms. You know, um, there are a variety of ways in which behavior is predicted. You know, through through technology, and that has you know has kind of assisted uh, some of the things in which we do. Um, but you know, the, each, each writer is looking at this in a, a different sense. And I, the stuff that, that kind of I, I can't do, um, and I've read a lot of it, you know, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very admiring of it, is the very removed future. You know, the, the future that, that is very either virtual reality has merged into reality and the characters have a kind of ubermensch quality to them where they're able to tran transcend distance to transcend time um, or to transcend, you know, the uh, force, you know, in terms of technology, you know, the, the technology is merged into the flesh, the flesh is merged into the technology. Right. Um, I, I kind of can't, I can't write that. Um, I struggle with writing that. I've read a fair amount of it um, and, uh, and I've enjoyed it. And, you know, but you have to kind of, there's a, there's a level of distance that you have to, to have from from some of the the elements of, of what's there um the the stuff that i'm i'm more interested in writing and that that certainly that um i think still has the the ability to resonate with us in terms of hope is near future uh exploring some of the elements that are you know coming forward and where you were saying that if you think that that kind of technology is caught up but there are still mythologies around that technology that are there to be explored um we we know what the distance is between in terms of how many days it would take for us to to get from earth to mars under conventional rocket travel we know what that distance is we can calculate it based on orbits um we know what the best possible path the best possible time of year you know how to how to do something like that but if we want to make it faster then we've got to introduce something that is on the edge of some of the technology that's that's here um, and we've seen experiments that, you know, have, have talked about that, you know, NASA have talked about experiments um, that uh, that don't conform necessarily to, to all the conventions of um, of how we understand physics. Um, and those are interesting. So, you know, so finding some way to kind of build build your pseudoscience, you know, maybe four or five bricks on top of that is is interesting understanding what it is to be human is still uh, an age-old question that was being asked in the, the 40s and the 50s. And it, it's still being asked today. It just has a new context because we're, as a society, we're dealing with, um, we're dealing with technology that, that almost approaches being people. Um, you know, in certain contexts, we think that, you know, that some things are people. Uh, the other day, the Coventry University website has a chatbot that, um, uh, when you when you open the library page, it asks you how you're doing and if you need some help. And you you know, I know it's a chatbot, but it it's its engagement is obviously is is designed to be as as real as possible. And I know that you know about four or five questions in, they then contact a librarian to see if the librarian can actually help you. So it then becomes a person. So some of these areas and some of these ideas are, are kind of blending together and have got lots of lots of different modern contexts for us. As as writers, it's really it's our 
you know, at least I see part of my my sort of path is to sort of explore that and see, well, well, what will change and how will things be different? And if a story is going to be about, you know, society being better, because society gets better in some respects, um, there are, you know, there are things that obviously we would wish would improve faster. We, we wish we could be, you know, more equal. Um, but there are things that do get better in some respects. And when we, when we find those or when we find ways in which the, the sort of level of hope is there within a story, I think it's, I think it's important. That said, fearless is not that story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it is, it is, um, you know, and other people have asked me to, to summarize it in the past. Um, it is the wrath of Khan meets the expanse. You know, it is a very much a, a, a duel between spaceships. Um, and there are a fair few people lose their lives. So, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily have that, that kind of aspirational hope quality to it. But, but I think there are, you know, there are a lot of writers who are writing that way. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, society achieving something, um, something greater. It can also be a story of hope about individuals, you know, somebody, you know, a group of people finding a way to do something. Um, you know, Andy Weir's The Martian is obviously is, is one that, that comes to mind immediately there because, you know, that's a story about people um, fundamentally. Um, and, you know, everything else about it is, you know, is, is amazing. But that specific element about the relationship of people, you know, I think is, is incredibly powerful. Um, and will be incredibly powerful for quite some time to come. Now, uh, it it brings to mind uh, the interview that Alan Moore did recently, talking about the effect of the superhero movie, the superhero story, um, and and his contributions to the the dark and gritty edge that has that has he says blighted entertainment blighted our culture even um uh, have we have we have we gotten to a point where there are too many dystopian stories out there that maybe that could be contributing to this feeling this general feeling of we're not going to make it i mean you talk about you know andy where's martian you talk about a couple of others those seem to be the exceptions to the rule at this point Maybe. Yeah, it's it, it's an interesting it's an interesting point. Um, Alan Moore actually lives about forty five minutes away, uh, so uh, yeah, he's in Northampton, which is is not very far from here, uh, and he loves Northampton. You know, he loves loves the the, the town passionately. Um, the I think I mean I would argue that um, that superhero films at this stage, the the franchise element of them in terms of the economics is quite a, a complicated thing. I mean, we've had a variety of, of different actors and directors talk about the fact that they seem to stifle the industry. And um, I would suggest that it, it's more complex than that. You know, the the idea of a tentpole film or a film that, that essentially gets made and, and makes a vast amount of money that then allows a studio to experiment with an array of other smaller budget films that are perhaps more artistic or saying something a little bit more profound, you know, I mean, that, that's, that's a tricky thing to, to kind of understand the balance of. 
and it's certainly not something that you know that I'm I'm not sitting here as the accountant uh, with the spreadsheet in terms of the way in which that works. But in terms of thinking about the saturation of stories, um, yeah, there are there are themes that that we are um, we are saturated with. I did a I did a paper actually for Worldcon at Helsinki where I was talking about um, the effect of mythology and um, the way in which some of the time how we mythologize things in culture what that can do is that can lead our culture to kind of think a particular way you know and, and one of the things that certainly was the case in this regard because I, I did a lot of this in my, my PhD research and then what I did is uh, stepped out of my PhD research and took a look around at, at the actual news media that was around me and went oh blimey some of the same things are going on the structures of narrative um, that we use in storytelling are being used in news media. You know, they are used in news media to create um, to create stories. You know, and to to make those stories easier and more palatable for people to to kind of digest. Right. And when you see that kind of thing happening in um, uh, in the news, that that becomes problematic because essentially, if fiction uses a structure and we like that structure you know once upon a time introduce the characters nice bit of conflict and then a, a happy ending or a resolution you know at the, at the end if we use the same structure in in our daily reporting then we're we're, we're kind of predetermined towards this good and evil element we're predetermined towards the idea of you know the world being simpler than it actually is and i think that's a danger of um of superhero stories um specifically because uh, we have this tradition in storytelling, certainly from fantasy and, you know, and, and then continued into to other genres that, that would perhaps derive from fantasy, um, where evil becomes tangible, where evil becomes personified, and we can slay it, um, and we can, we can kill it. And that's not real life. Um, and actually, that, to me, is more of a danger than, um, than proclamating a kind of um, a kind of cynicism. Um, I, I do concern myself, you know, I am worried about the, the sort of cynicism element of if we continually talk about the world being worse and, and everything getting worse and, and, and life getting worse and society getting worse and, you know, eventually we're going to end up with X, Y, or Z. But that that's not just about, um, you know, the reason people do that is not just about um, that for effect. It's also about trying to hold a mirror up to to some of the themes that are already going on. Um, and by mirror, you know, I can I can I can cite Black Mirror in that regard. I think I think Black Mirror is one of the most fabulous series that that you know it's ever been written, specifically for the fact that it does make you think again about things that um, that are going on in your life. It resonates, um, and I think that's important. But my my chief concern with with superhero films, I, I think I possibly would agree with Alan Moore in that um, some of these dystopias are kind of sexy, cool, as opposed mm. to dystopian. If right. that makes sense. No, it absolutely people, does. People don't necessarily think about the loaf of bread, and the you know we don't see how hard it is for people to eat, yeah. or how hard it is for them to you know to to get warm at night, um, and some of the you know some of the consequences of stuff. Um, so I would, you know, I would agree with him there. But I mean, that's that's very similar to if you go back to, to kind of classic fantasy and say, um, what happens to the horse? When does the horse get food? 
Um, what are they, what are, you know, some of the detail. Um, I, I don't know if you've ever read um, Diane Wynne Jones's Tough Guide to Fantasyland. I have not, no. It's fantastic. It's a tiny little book and it basically is a complete book of archetypes of fantasy. And the first page says, um, before you begin reading, look at the map. Go to the map. Find your place on the map. Because, of course, you know, the map is a trope. Um, and then, you know, you've got a listing for a dark lord. You've got a listing for, um, you know, for uh, Thebes, where Thebes appear. And, you know, they only appear in shadows, you know, um, and stuff like that. So, it, you know, it identifies a lot of tropes. And it's a, a really good, she's not written it as an educational lesson for writers, but it is a really good comedy educational lesson for writers. Sure. And actually, you can kind of think about some of the saturation of, of, of current trends in a similar sense. I, I do think the dangerous thing, though, is this, you know, simplification of what evil is. And that's been going on a while, you know, and life isn't like that. Along those lines, and you talk about the, how the media sets up a, a narrative that kind of simplifies things. And, and, and social media, of course, has done its share of uh, inculcating us into this us versus them mentality. And we saw some of this going on with the Hugos, you know, back and forth the last few years. Mm -hmm. Are we ever eventually going to be able to get past this if you don't agree with me i need to shut you down type of behavior that we're seeing or are, are, are we are we self-perpetuating that are we letting social media and regular media drive that a little bit too much do you think okay so i'm going to answer that by by sort of flipping it slightly at you in okay. that the way in which you've just described it is dystopian um yep because if we if we consider the fact that if we're, we're talking about you know people shutting down conversations uh we are having a conversation currently that where we are not shutting each other down so we could kind of look at it as the glass half full in that yes we are we are seeing a variety of conversations where you know where people essentially are going i can't agree with you i can't learn anything from you you're not learning anything from me um we should not talk to each other you know, filter bubble out or, you know, block or, you know, create a wall. So, right. and I, I do think there is a danger in relation to, you know, to echo chambers. Um, I think that, that cultural reinforcement within one set of opinions is, is, a, is a very real danger for, you know, for people all over the world at the moment. And I think social media um, is, is waking up to the fact that this is something that it, it, it not instigated, but it catalyzed um, in terms of where we are right now. Sure. Um, I always approach a conversation in any social media environment or anywhere else that I can be wrong. And I am prepared to say as loudly as I will give an opinion that I am wrong and that someone else is right. And I always approach a conversation prepared for somebody else to teach me something and learn something from me. Um, and I, cause I, I kind of hope that they approach it the same way. Um, you know, I'm kind of thinking that if I'm, if I'm open to learn from you, that you're open to learn from me, you know, so I, I try to, to engage in that regard, but you do find, and you know, you can be as open as, uh, you know, as you, as you want to be able to be, 
you do find that there are people who are just not prepared to engage, you know, and they are just not prepared to change anything. And you can tell fairly quickly that really what they're trying to do is either A, score points or just convince you of their specific viewpoint. You know, right. so they're either playing to the gallery or <laughs> they want to convince you, but they're not prepared to be, you know, convinced by you. Right. And and actually, you know, if you if you're going to engage in a rational conversation, you you know, you want to be able to to judge people's sources and to to make a mind up for yourself and kind of question, interrogate a point, and so on and so forth. Um, so I I think that it's quite a complex situation. There is a danger of us polarizing, and we have a bit of an issue here in the UK in in that regard. Um, it's a little different to, to to how it is in America. I do think editorial. Um, editorial opinion in news media has become a problem. Um, we have a problem in the UK whereby BBC news reporting often is accompanied by an editorial expert who tells you how you should think about what you're you're hearing sure. or gives you their expert view on, you know, or expert analysis. And I think that's, that's a problem. I, I don't question their expertise, but as soon as somebody puts a framework around what you're you're absorbing in terms of information, then you're you're looking for confirmation bias in relation to that framework. You know, unconsciously, if you're not concentrating hard, you're you're looking to identify some of the you know the same components, the same ways in which something fits. You don't necessarily look outside of the narrative. Um, and obviously, as university lecturers, we try and you know teach students to question and criticize as much as we possibly can examine from a you know a variety of perspectives um so i you know i worry about that specifically that that editorialization and i worry about the kind of equivalence balance that we also see because if something shifts and and this is this is kind of if you're you're thinking about a seesaw if you think about balance or the middle as mm -hmm. being something that can shift, then actually you're not really in your own perspective. You're kind of just in a shifting perspective all the time. Right. So um, we've, you know, we've seen Brian Cox come on to uh, the, you know, the international scientist come on to, you know, to to discuss a particular opinion on a particular set of, of, of you know, of scientific uh, scientific knowledge. And he'll be balanced up by a flat earther or he'll be balanced up by somebody who, you know, who, whose whose view is the opposite of his because right. somebody is looking for balance. And the problem is if you continually look for balance, your middle ground always shifts because sure. whoever is whoever is at the extreme, it, they can be at the extreme at one end. That means that the other person doesn't mean they have to go further out. Sometimes it means that they have to come further in and actually your center has kind of shifted off over there because if the fulcrum in the middle has moved over, then do you, do you see where I'm going yes, in terms of, of what's there? It's some, sometimes it's presented as balance, but it doesn't necessarily mean equal balance. Uh, you don't you don't have any kind of equilibrium of thought. Yeah, or, or yeah. it's facts versus rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me let me circle around here because something that you had said uh, earlier uh, about franchises. I want to ask about about fearless in that regard here in a moment. But you said something about, you know, the superhero movies, the big blockbuster films generating the budgets so that they can experiment and do smaller budget pictures. And now with the the quarantine and the pandemic and movie theaters being shut down, 
it, this has come up in conversation a couple of times. Do you think maybe there's an opportunity here for the studios to start making those smaller budget pictures because you're not going to get the audiences coming back to the movie theaters and the numbers that you'd need for those $200 million movies to, to make their money back. And by extension of that, you're also looking at the conventions. You, you having organized fantasy kind, you've been involved in the convention circuit. People are not going to be coming back to those in, in the numbers that we've seen in the past as well. Are we looking at a paradigm shift culturally with all of this, or is this just a hiccup because we have a unique set of circumstances that might or might not play out again, but hopefully we can get our, get, you know, get our hands around this in, in the next six months or so. How, how much do you think this alters things moving forward from here? Uh, quite a lot. I mean, you know, uh, any writer or uh, or filmmaker or content creator is looking to to kind of connect with their audience, and if their audience's experience is is kind of different and changed, then you know they're, they're, that's going to be reflected in some of the literature and some of the the texts that that are, are produced. Um, I would say it's not quite just. Um, I don't think the opportunity is just. Uh, related to the amount of audiences in cinemas. I think cinema itself at this stage has got to think about what it is. I mean, we've we've just had about a week ago, Cineworld is probably one of the biggest um, network chain cinemas in the UK. I think they have 160 odd um, uh, screen, you know, uh, complexes and they've announced that they're shut. Um, they're not out of business, but they're shut. It's not economically viable for them to continue at this stage. Now that said, uh, about three weeks ago for my partner's birthday, we went to a drive-in screening of Tenet, which was fantastic. And of course, what they've done is some entre uh, you know, uh, sort of entrepreneur individual has thought about how they're going to do this. They've got some contacts and connections to get hold of the latest releases. And they have found a way to create, a, you know, a, a sort of a, a, a transmitter device that you can plug into your car. So what you do is you plug that in and suddenly I'm hearing the film through the car speakers and I'm watching it in the, the comfort of my car and there's, you know, 20 or 30 cars next to me. And, you know, and they're thinking about um, occasionally you've got a car or two that can't, uh, can't do that without having, you know, can't keep the, the battery on without the headlights being on. So they've got headlight covers and they've thought about some of the other, you know, elements. So it's quite clear that, you know, that, that some people are thinking about this and thinking about how the audience has changed and how the, there is a need to cater for the change of audience. And cinema has always been a spectacle. Um, it innovated through several iterations to try and preserve that spectacle. 3D is, you know, was an attempt to preserve that spectacle. And I don't know about you guys, but we, we regularly have advertisements in cinemas for the latest new kind of gimmick, whether oh, it's yeah. chairs that are going to throw you around uh, while you're, you know, um, while you're watching stuff or a smell of those vision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. smell of vision. Yeah, 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 I remember smell of vision. Or those kind of box screens, you know, the ones where the you know the the the, the text is now gonna be up the side. Oh uh -huh. you know, as well yeah. as you know as well as in front. Um I actually had a few years ago when I was doing a module with some of my students, 
they were supposed to to kind of talk about how you know what the next technology was and bless them as one of the presentations that made myself and my 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 co-lecturer sit down on chairs and made us watch a film while they splashed water on our faces and made us smell stuff <laughs> and it was the funniest thing but but the point you know the point of of all of this is about kind of understanding what the new uh, the new context is going to be and it's it's very similar i mean you know this happens not just through you know the pandemic it happens through technological innovation as well um i don't think we have a language of vr cinema yet you know we have a language of cinema right um but if you want to make a film in virtual reality and you do a, a straight cut between one scene and another it's horrible for the person who's in virtual reality whereas it's totally natural to us in you know in a a cinema experience so there are you know there are things that we're and and you know cinema's language evolved from theater and evolved from you know from other other mediums from photography so you know all of these things kind of change and the the what what the audience is used to will alter um where we get ahead of it is going to be the interesting thing and i i, I think it's it's telling as to which companies get ahead you know in in which ways uh i thought it was very interesting that disney launched with disney plus mm-hmm. um here certainly here in the uk they launched as we went into lockdown everybody got a seven day disney free trial you know they they you know as long as you as long as you registered an account with a credit card you could get a 77 day disney free trial pretty much you know 90% 80% of people i know did that and watched every bit of star wars they could find <laughs> uh myself and my partner you know we did we did star wars chronologically all the way from the beginning with all the tv series and everything all the way to the end as far yeah. as we could go and then we canceled our subscription you know because that was something that in lockdown it was something we could kind of share and we could kind of do um so yeah so it it's going to depend on how people look at the audiences and think about them. I'm seeing quite a lot at the moment, you know, theater is trying to reinvent itself. I was showing students the other day um, some examples of Zoom theater where essentially they're looking at the screen as a stage. Mm-hmm. So thinking about how you can frame that stage and also thinking about forced perspective because, you know, that's one of the oldest tricks in cinema, but you can use it because the screen's flat. And it's trying, you know, your eyes are what makes the judgment about what is in front and what is behind, you know. So, you know, references are are there on the screen. You can kind of think about, you know, if you see something, something there, if you see a, a person of a particular size and you see a building of a different size, you know, if you judge the castle behind me, it's right. clearly a model, right? You know, but but if we could, if we could, you know, sort of force the perspective so I looked much bigger or much further away, or the castle look much further away, then you, you know, you're changing that in terms of what's there. So yeah, I think there's, there's a variety of ways in which, um, uh, ways in which the, the commercial companies are going to start to think about the change of human behavior and how they can adapt to it. And they've got to make it, they've got to stick or twist, you know, they've got to make a choice, either they're going to try something and change their model, or they're going to stick with the the tried and tested and they're basically going to postpone stuff for a while and hope that it comes back. 
How do you think this affects uh, Comic-Cons? Because we've seen now uh, DC FanDome has pretty much set the standard as far as, you know, they've, they've, they've put a rather high bar there. And you look at San Diego, you look at New York, and those two events, which are some of the biggest conventions, actual in-person conventions, not doing so well online. It would seem like uh, these these bigger conventions that are so tied in with media would have a handle on this a little bit better, and they don't seem to be adjusting very well. And and moving forward, you almost think that the conventions are going to have to figure out some way to incorporate an online component because there are going to be people that are just not going to walk into the convention center. Well, there's also the fact that you're going to attract an audience that's a lot more diverse than the audience that you were going to attract in the first place. It's an advantage. Um, the only issue is how you deal with value. Um, so, for example, and this this was quite funny, so you'll, 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 you'll laugh about this. And, and, and by the way, uh, there isn't there isn't a controversy here. We have squared it off in terms of what happened. So this year we run a computer game convention called LaveCon, which is associated with Elite Dangerous. We've run it since 2013. So we we get about you know it's not a big convention. We go to a um, a hotel in in the middle of Northamptonshire, uh, the Sedgebrook Hall, lovely hotel, and essentially it's a convention built around a big local area network so uh, people are coming and they play the computer game together so we'll we'll you know we'll upgrade the wi-fi in the the hotel we upgrade the 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 network and we get sort of 40 or 50 machines uh people playing this 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 online space sim and then there's a, a heap of other events so you have the developers from the the company will turn up and talk about the next things that they're going to do and you'll have um uh, board games and you'll have role-playing games and you'll have panels and you'll have stuff you know we'll have some readings for, for things that I'm doing and or you know other authors now we made the decision to go completely online um, we were supported really well by our convention in that in the UK there was some uh, there was some some kind of it wasn't clear cut as to whether we were not allowed to, to, to be at the hotel or not. Um, the UK government has not been particularly good at being clear cut in terms of its uh, <laughs> messaging. And part of that I know is because of insurance companies they're, they're, you know, they don't want to be liable for, yeah. you know, for the underwriting. So we were running around the 4th of July and we were basically, we were in communication with the hotel. The hotel were absolutely brilliant. And they just said to us, okay, uh, let's cancel do you want your booking next year or do you want your booking in November? And we said, we want it next year. We don't want November. So, you know, we've got, we've got a repeat booking at the hotel. Fantastic. That's, that's all great. So there was no financial loss for the business in terms of, of what we were doing. But then we decided, you know, because the, the people who were organizing it said, well, can we, can we just do a weekend online? And, and said, yeah, you know, I mean, we've got the tech, we know, we understand all the, the kit from doing the podcast. So let's do that. Um, and better minds than me, put together most of it we had zoom as a green room we were broadcasting live on twitch um we have a an absolutely brilliant and uh, a shout out to grant uh Cow, who is absolutely amazing has set up this this kind of transmission system that he uses his pc as as basically to to bring all the screens to him that then pushed out in this this you know sort of setup display and he can pipe adverts in he can pipe in 
you know, sort of other feeds from, from other places as well. Absolutely incredible. So all of that was set up. We ran it all. My partner um, sat in the green room for, for two and a half days, did, did everything. And it was all volunteers, all fans. The, the entire convention has been, you know, run by fans since its start. And then in September, Frontier Developments, who make Elite Dangerous, released in their financial report that they had made the decision for Lavecom to go online and that they had <laughs> they had arranged everything and done everything. Um, which the the forums of, of most of the gamers kind of went. Yeah. Is Lavecon owned by Frontier? Who is what what's this? So of course it prompted me to, you know, to send an email to the uh, to the head of publishing over there and go, can I draw your attention to paragraph? on page um would you like to, to let me know what you what, what that means oh oh phone me phone me on my mobile okay okay so we had a, a quick mobile phone conversation complete you know somebody who in the press um and the uh, you know the, the the kind of um business report office basically had put in some pr guff that was utter rubbish you know the the company have done everything they can since that point to go no 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 no, no it wasn't us you know we we did not run that event. We did not do any because they, you know, basically as soon as they furloughed their staff, they went, yeah, one or two people will turn up because they want to, but we're not going to deliver any content for you. Right. So which was was fine, you know. And actually, we had a wonderful weekend. Really enjoyed it. You know, um, it went very well. And similarly, we had to with the the British Science Fiction Association, which I'm the chair of, when we did our awards this year. They had to be presented. Usually we present them at Eastercom. They had to be presented in my spare room upstairs. So I had to dress up in a tux and, <laughs> well, you know, a suit. It wasn't a, you know, waistcoat and tie and all the rest of that. Right. And kind of record this video, put it together, get some clips from the winners so that they could deliver their speeches, put the awards on a little table in front of me, you know, read everything off my iPad in terms of the, you know, and then cut and paste and cut and paste and edit and edit and edit. And thankfully, you know, I'm a media lecturer, so I've been editing video for nearly 20 years. So, you know, I know what I'm doing, but that's hard. Yeah. And I think that it, for big conventions, they, they're going to have to meet that, you know, in terms of, of how they manage stuff. What I said about value, you have to think about how do you retain your value as a convention at the same time as providing some of this access, because I think there will be online components now. I think that, you know, we'll run, we're, we're running FantasyCon in the UK next year. We will have to deliver an online streaming setup and it will be fabulous because we will get people who would not necessarily come to UK FantasyCon. They will, you know, they'll come in from all over the world and they'll just, just pop by to see what's going on and maybe get a reading or something like that. We're going to need to facilitate that. You right. know, that's a challenge. But at the same time, if you bought a ticket, how does the value of that ticket compare with someone who just happens to, to drop into, you know, to, to Twitch or to, to Zoom or something else uh, where they're in? And I don't think we can do it as clear cut as saying, OK, there's an online ticket and you only get access to stuff if you buy the online ticket. I think, you know, more savvy conventions are going to go, here's the free stream. Mm -hmm. here's the here's the you know the maybe the cafe clatch stream or or whatever you want to call it in terms of you being able to chat to people and here's the convention going 
you know sort of element in terms of what's there right so yeah it, it's going to be a challenge and you know um speaking as a tutor who's been teaching all the way through this pandemic you know i taught all summer and i'm teaching now um it it's a challenge to work out what the most efficient technology is for your time and it's oh, sure. different for for everybody in that regard you know um well and not only that but now you have to to figure the global Im implication of it because you know you don't have people you know, like in terms of FantasyCon, they would be coming to the UK for the actual physical event. Whereas now, if you have something online, you can get people from Australia and people from South Africa and people from the United States. All of these different people can participate. So now you have to contend with time zones yeah, and, yeah. and that sort of thing. So, yeah, there, there are definitely going to have to be some conversations on how to handle that. I think you're right. The value aspect of it is something that people still are having to contend with how do you bring that value to that um so let me let me shift gears here this last question because we're talking about franchises uh and you mentioned uh, with fearless you're working on the second book in the series how many how many do you have planned is this a a finite this is a trilogy or this can go however long it goes uh, the latter. <laughs> Hopefully, my publisher's listening. Um, as as the, many as people will buy, huh? Well, it, it you know, I I'm telling a near future story. I I was uh, the second book is 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 tricky in that the second book, and I I, I think it's tricky for you know for any writer in terms of um, uh, something that's there. The first book is very much a contained narrative. The second book has a contained narrative but there are obviously there are concerns in terms of picking up the story from where the first book was in the first place right uh you know where it where it sort of left off um now i i've described the first book as uh the wrath of khan meets meets the expanse the second book is die hard on a space station um <laughs> but then you you know i can i can kind of you know, think about that narrative and think about that kind of, you know, very, very kind of contained narrative, which is, you know, is one of the things I like about this particular series in in terms of the, the, the constraint. It allows me to sort of explore within that, that framework. But the problem with, you know, with, with an ongoing series is that, you know, you are starting to bring in elements and starting to hint at elements of the geopolitical society of, you know, of, of the world in 21 uh 2181 i think it is oh no 2118 isn't it that's right sorry that's where i'm writing see i've just skipped on 70 years just <laughs> ah, straight off the bat it's easy um, to do yeah so I'm, I'm writing in 2118 and so you know the geopolitical situation in 2118 is something i've got to to kind of get a handle around right. um and i've i've always envisaged it as a i i read quite a lot of kim stanley robinson in terms of the the corporate uh state partnership relationship that he brought into red mars i thought that was quite interesting um and i quite like that so i I'm, I'm interested in that and that's certainly something that has been the premise of of fearless and that's that's you know that's already in there um and then taking that a little further and coming back to some of my my sort of science fiction inspiration roots by considering some of the big questions that that asimov asked is 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 quite a large thing and with Powerless, Powerless, which is its working title, I'm not, you know, I'm not wedded to it right now. So if it changes, then, you know, it's what happens. Um, 
but with the um, with the concerns of, of of sort of the geopolitical element, because people are interested in it, and you know, and it is something that the the tensions of these things are gradually being revealed. There were questions left over in the first novel, finding out who the motivators are behind some of these things. Um, I think is you know it's useful to explore. But what that does is that that kind of breaks a little bit of the the constraint, you know. So so you know some of the the noises off from the space station or some of the you know the geopolitical concerns have to kind of to kind of filter in in terms of the way in which that works. Right. Um, I do have, I've got a direction which is is nice. Um, there is a a small piece of writing that I've done for something else that gives me a a kind of a, a place to aim for in a couple of hundred years. So that's quite useful. Um, hopefully, I'm not still writing in a couple of hundred years. You know, they can <laughs> thaw me out and you know get the next novel done um the but yeah it gives me somewhere to aim for um i think really the key thing is that it's it's got to have a readership and sure. you know we're at we're at fairly early days at this stage it was only out in september so i'm kind of hoping that people are going to enjoy it that you know that they're going to pick it up and you know and and read it and go yeah i'd love to to learn more about this character or what happens next or you know the other stuff um, I am I am one of those writers that that kind of leaves you somewhere where you know that it can be picked up again and kind of you might you know I've seen one or two of the reviews where they've gone oh on the next book <laughs> um, sorry you know I, and and in that regard I think it is important that people recognise the actual commercial situation of 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 you know of how the publishing industry works you know um, I want to write more my publishers have read it and they've said we really like it you know i want them to to say can you write more you know we'll take more so you have to you know it's a, a continual you know reciprocal process in that regard sure. um and you know and they've obviously got to factor in what's going on for them you know yeah. um the the economic situation is going to be very different in the next couple of years for you know for, for publishers so you know, we have to kind of see how that's going to affect different things as well. Well, hopefully that works out. The book is Fearless. It is out currently. And I have looked around here to, to see if we have a copy uh, in our review pile. And I, w I want to say that I actually had one and I can't find it. So I'm going to have to talk to, to people about getting one. But... You, you just, you know, I, I mean, I can post you one, but it's a long way yeah. from here. <laughs> you know, it, it, it might um, it might sort of. I, I, you know, I guess the 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 guys there can 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 send you something. All you got to do is, probably, you know, yeah, we can yeah, get our hands on one. You know, they'll, they'll do that. The Just website, tell them I said. Tell them I said you could. Okay, I will do that. The website <laughs> Alan Alan Stroud .com. He is also on Twitter at Alan J Stroud, and uh, we do appreciate you coming in today to talk about everything, sir. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It uh, it went really well, I think. Yeah, lovely to chat to you, Jason. You All guys right. take care. All right. Thank you very much. And those of you, uh, speaking of wheelchairs and disabilities, just want to make a note here that uh, coming up this weekend, starting on Friday, we will be participating. We will be engineering the Walking and Rolling Costumes virtual party starting October 6th, uh, excuse me, October 16th at 7 p.m. Central. And that goes through the 25th. We'll be talking about various different um uh, costumes that involve uh, wheelchairs. These are specially designed costumes for kids with special needs. And we'll be uh, talking to various different families about that, about uh, their experiences. 
And on the 25th, it's a Sunday, we will be doing a live reveal of a brand new costume we're giving to a kid. So you can find out more about that at walkandrollin.org. And that's going to do it for us today. Don't forget, we do have a new uh, uh, H2O podcast that dropped this week. We've got a new Salacious Crumbs that dropped yesterday. New Ranker Pit coming up Friday night. And uh, we will be back here tomorrow uh, with another conversation live from the bunker. Thanks for being here, everyone. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.